0: Today, some of our best segments from the global lane. Called crazy, censored, blacklisted and beyond. Americans are being rooted out and punished for their support of President Trump. This vile treatment smacks of McCarthyism with even more disturbing global parallels. Dale Hurd brings us this alarming report.
1: This was an attorney for PBS caught on camera saying the children of Trump supporters should be taken away from their parents and put in re-education camps. He was later fired, while voices in the media still call for Trump supporters to be deprogrammed. There are millions of Americans, um, almost all white, almost all Republicans, who somehow need to be deprogrammed. And the
0: question is, how are we going to really almost deprogram these people who have signed up for the cult of Trump?
1: Trump supporters are also being called mentally ill and are being censored, doxed, deplatformed, blacklisted, and demonetized. It's giving some who have lived in communist countries flashbacks. For those who lived under communist dictatorships, What's happening in America has some disturbing parallels. Chinese pastor Bob Fu was a student leader during the Tiananmen Square pro-democracy demonstrations in 1989. He was also a proud attendee of the January 6th Trump rally on the National Mall. He says the call to re-educate and deprogram Trump supporters is straight out of the Chinese Communist Party playbook. It's absolutely
2: uh, these kind of tactics. uh, They all requires forced conformity. If you don't comply, then you will be
1: punished elizabeth rogliani's family had to flee venezuela when hugo chavez took power her video warning last year to americans about the similarities between the antifa and black lives matter rioting and what happened in venezuela went viral
3: i've already lived through this thing when i was living in venezuela
1: She says the labeling of Trump supporters as potential domestic terrorists was a tactic Hugo Chavez used to stigmatize his political opposition.
4: Calling out opposition or Republicans as terrorist or fascist. That is the kind of language I saw a lot. Uh, Late President Hugo Chavez used to call us fascist and terrorist as well.
1: Rogliani says one ominous sign for America has been all the conservatives flocking to more secure messaging platforms like Telegram, because that's exactly what happened in Venezuela when the Democratic opposition was deplatformed and opposition leaders began to be arrested.
4: We jumped into Telegram really early on, so I had it for years. I find that very interesting how it's happening so fast here.
1: Jason Poblet's grandfather had to flee Cuba when Fidel Castro took power. Poblet, an attorney who has worked in Congress, is president of the Global Liberty Alliance and says what happened in Cuba is replaying in the United States. Dale, it's painful to watch. It's not something that I ever thought... I would see in the United States, in Cuba, the socialist facilitators had been laying the groundwork. And by the time Fidel Castro rolled in, uh, they had already laid that framework in place to take the government over. If his grandfather, who loved America deeply, was alive today to see how Trump supporters are being demonized, he would be scared. And then he would tell me, hey, Jason, what are you doing about it? (laughs) Because you can't go anywhere. I mean this is it there's nowhere for us to go
0: dale hurd joins us to provide more insights you also talked to german evangelist heidi munt dale for this story so what did she tell you about her experience uh, growing up in east germany the parallels with what's happening today
1: she was very politically incorrect gary um the first thing she said was of course we know east germany was called the german democratic republic and she said, uh, your Democrats remind me of the old East Germany. Uh, she feels like it's the same spirit, uh, people calling themselves Democrats, but they're really socialists or even communists. So, yeah, she had a lot of talk like that. She, she had grown up an ardent communist, turned against the government, and then paid the price. Her career came to a dead stop. She couldn't work anymore. She talked about how people were taken to mental hospitals as a form of punishment, the dissidents, which, of course, we know was widespread across the Soviet bloc, and how they took they took children away from dissidents, like uh, my story mentioned, they'd like to do to Trump supporters.
0: And Democrats make no secret, Dale, of their desire to prevent Donald Trump from running for office again. And I'm sure that reminds you of the tactics of Stalin, the poisoning and imprisonment of Putin's opponent, Alexei Navalny, and recently in Russia. And tell tell us more about that.
1: Well, you know what it says? It says, just like a communist dictator who wasn't elected, they're paranoid that they wouldn't win another election against Trump because uh, he's still very popular. And they want to make sure that this political opposition, you know, stays out of their way. It's very it's very telling, I think, what, what they're trying to do to Trump.
0: And there's another big parallel in Latin America, the comparison of Antifa here in the USA with militants in Venezuela known as the colectivos. Tell us about them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They look surprisingly like Antifa, um, you know, masks, except these guys just carried guns openly. They rode around on scooters and terrorized Uh, the Democratic opposition. They were the muscle of Hugo Chavez's revolution. Just as some argue, Antifa is the muscle of the left in this country, Um, you know, making it plain to shop owners, to business people, to residents in whatever city that if if you're a Trump supporter or you're not, you know, going along with our party line that you, you may take a physical toll for it. Or your house may be attacked. You may be beat up.
0: OK, CBN News senior international correspondent Dale Hurd. Thanks for your excellent story and for providing those additional insights, Dale. Thank you, Gary. The world is becoming less free. That according to the latest Global Freedom Survey by Freedom House. And if you follow the news regularly, you know that the persecution of Christians worldwide is on the upswing. Our next guest knows a lot about it. He's traveled to restricted and hostile countries for the voice of the martyrs for more than 20 years. Todd Nettleton is the host of VOM Radio, author of the new VOM book, When Faith is Forbidden. 40 days on the front lines with persecuted Christians. So, Todd, it's good to see you again. Before we discuss the book, I know you've served the persecuted church now for 20 years. I'm sure you've seen persecution grow worse. So why do you think it's getting worse? Why is that happening?
3: You know, I I think part of the answer to that question is actually good news. And the reason that persecution is increasing in many places is because the church is growing. There are more Christians in the Middle East. There are more Christians in China, which means there are more potential targets for persecution. So yes, persecution is increasing, but in part at least, that's actually good news
0: because it represents the growth of the church. So let's begin with those detailed in five chapters of your book, Turkey. The Malatya Martyrs. Now, next month, it'll be 14 years since the death of those three Christians. Now, there are two Turks and a German. Remind us what happened to them, Todd, and and what did you learn from meeting with their families? Well, as you say, two Turks and a German Christian were killed in the
3: offices of a Christian publishing house there in Malatya in central Turkey. Uh, The five guys who committed the murders, had posed as seekers. In fact, two of them had visited the church. They had met with the pastor. They'd asked questions indicating, hey, we want to know more about Jesus. We want to know more about being a Christian. All of that was a ruse in order to set up a meeting at the Christian publishing house where they showed up with ropes and knives, and they killed our three brothers. I had the chance to be in Turkey just seven weeks after those killings and got to meet numerous people involved in the story. I met the two widows from the two martyrs who had been married. I met the fiance of the third martyr who was engaged at the time of his death. What I came away with was just the faithfulness of God and the amazing courage, particularly of the two widows. Just 24 hours after their husbands were killed, they were on national television in Turkey forgiving the men who had killed their husbands, offering forgiveness, literally echoing the words of Christ on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. A Muslim journalist in Turkey said those two ladies, by offering forgiveness, did more for Christianity in Turkey than a thousand missionaries could have done in a thousand years. That's the impact of the forgiveness, and I think that's part of the reason that that story has
0: so impacted and and so stayed with me all these years. I'm always amazed at the attitude of Christians who have been in prison for their faith. You feature quite a few in the book, but tell us about Mrs. Choi, the woman from North Korea, and what she told you about her time in the gulag there.
3: You know, Mrs. Choi had just an incredibly sad story, and it was was hard to sit with her and listen to the suffering that she had had. One of the amazing things about Mrs. Choi's story, her husband was in the Communist Party in North Korea. He was a person of some influence, and so— at the end of her trial, her first trial, she was actually found innocent. The the judge said, you're innocent, these charges have no merit, you can go. Well, the Communist Party, the North Korean, the regime there, they, they couldn't allow that to stay. So they quickly said, oh, wait a minute, we're gonna have a redo, we're gonna have another trial. This time before she was taken to the trial, Mrs. Choi was beaten so severely, that she couldn't even speak at the trial. She couldn't even talk in her own defense. And of course, this time the regime got the the verdict that they wanted. She was found guilty and sent off to prison. Like our sisters in Turkey, the the Christians we meet have already come to the point of forgiveness. They've been able to say, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I forgive my persecutors. Uh, Sister Troy wasn't there yet. I think one of the things that helps us to do is it helps us pray for Christians who are in that spot. They've been persecuted, and they're trying to forgive, but they're not there yet. And we can pray that the Holy Spirit will empower them to come to that point of saying, I forgive, I forgive even the people who persecuted me.
0: You're among the first to interview our mutual friend from the Czech Republic, Peter Yashik. He was in prison for 15 months with ISIS jihadists in Sudan. You've known Peter for a long time, so have I. You were surprised, though, when you met him shortly after his release. Why was that? we wondered as i went to czech republic to meet with him after his
3: release what what's going to be left what's going to have happened to peter how is peter going to be in comparison to the peter that we used to know before prison before being in a cell with isis fighters and i came back from czech republic and i told my wife he's the same peter he just loves jesus more now somehow That 14 months in prison had actually strengthened his love for Christ and deepened his love for Christ. And so I came back and said, He's the same Peter, but he loves Jesus
0: even more now than he did before. A lot of great stories, loving Jesus more. Okay, the book is When Faith is Forbidden 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. I saw the book on Amazon. Where else can people get it, Todd? It's available wherever
3: you buy books. It is published by Moody Publishers. We have links uh, to different retailers at whenfaithisforbidden.com. So you can find links to wherever you'd like to
0: buy it, whenfaithisforbidden.com. Okay, Todd Nettleton, congratulations on the book and thanks for sharing.
3: Thank you, Gary. It's always fun to talk to you.
0: Driving America toward a clean energy future. Green New Deal or something else? President Joe Biden's ambitious executive actions on climate change may end up costing U.S. taxpayers trillions of dollars. Here to break it down and explain the potential impact on American workers is Dr. Patrick Moore. He was a co-founder of Greenpeace. He currently sits on the board of the CO2 Coalition, Dr. Moore is author of the book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. Dr. Moore, it's great having you with us. So first, let's look at Joe Biden's order that commits the United States to rejoin the Paris Agreement on climate change. So what effect might that have on the U.S. economy? It will
4: have the effect of allowing China to continue growing its emissions along with India and many other countries, uh, which I, I don't doubt that they feel like they should do that. But... For the United States to artificially constrict itself without other countries agreeing to doing the same thing, first off, is ridiculous. And secondly, the United States is the only industrialized country that has reduced its CO2 emissions over the last 10 years because of substituting natural gas for coal in electricity production primarily. The the wind and solar people take credit for it, but that is not the truth. The truth is that coal has gone down and gas has gone up and gas has only 50 percent of the CO2 emissions of coal. So, naturally, CO2 emissions go down when you do that. The Chinese have just built more new coal plants in the last year than the whole rest of the world put together. I don't understand why the United States would do such a thing when the Chinese are pretending that they are going to start phasing out fossil fuels in 2060. You know, like, That's 40 years from now, and it's costing jobs and it's costing energy independence for the whole of North America, because not only is the U.S. on this kick, but the Canadian politics in the East are trying to destroy the oil sands in the West, and they have the U.S. whole U.S. environmental movement on their side, along with the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation in New York. They say they're fighting climate change. No. THEY'RE FIGHTING FOSSIL FUELS. IT'S A WAR ON FOSSIL FUELS. THEY CAN'T CHANGE THE CLIMATE. THEY HAVE NO IDEA WHAT THEY'RE DOING WHEN THEY SAY THEY THINK THEY CAN CHANGE THE CLIMATE BY ENDING THE USE OF FOSSIL FUELS. IT IS A FAIRY TALE.
0: I want, to talk, I want to talk a little bit more about the agenda, but it seems that we're returning to the Obama-era policy of shifting the country away from oil and gas production. Energy workers and industry officials, as you know, are angry over that. They're losing their livelihood. Some politicians uh, suggest, well, these job losses can be minimized if we just produce more solar panels and windmills. Your thoughts? It's not possible to replace reliable,
4: cost-effective energy that comes from fossil fuels, hydroelectric and nuclear power with technology that is intermittent, really intermittent, like sometimes three days it goes away. That's why hospitals are putting in huge diesel generator sets in order to be ready for these blackouts, because they can't do without power. Uh, They have to have it 24-7, and wind and solar can't do that. Every time
0: you build a wind and solar farm, You have to build something else that is reliable to back it up. So I'm assuming you don't buy into this premise that we're going to experience more monster storms, flooding, natural disasters. If we don't act quickly, we may have a short time before the seas rise and the world comes to an end. So what's the real agenda here?
4: Well, I would first like to know what the world coming to an end actually looks like. That's such a stupid thing to say. The world isn't going to come to an end, and neither is life on Earth going to come to an end. They are playing on people's belief in things that are invisible and or so remote that no one can see them for themselves. Those are the fake invisible catastrophes, like the giant Pacific garbage patch twice the size of Texas in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where no one can see whether it's there or not. It is not there. It does not exist. It is a total fake thing that CNN is playing up as something real out there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, twice the size of Texas. It's not there. All the plants that produce the basis of life in the sea, it's the phytoplankton, which are tiny plants. On land, it's all the forests and fields that you see growing plants. That is the basis of life. And they live because carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere And the fact is, carbon dioxide is at at one of its lowest points in the history of Earth, the long history of Earth. And here we have made up this fantasy that carbon dioxide is a pollutant, that it's like toxic or something. It's absolute rubbish. But because you can't see it, you can't observe for yourself what it's doing. You can't look over and say, look what the CO2 is doing over there, because you can't see it. So they can make up any story they want, and then... Because the average person can't observe it for themselves, we have to depend on the activists, the media, the politicians, and the scientists on serial government grants for the truth. Why would they tell us
0: the truth when their whole careers depend upon us believing their fake scare story? Follow the science, the real science, and follow the money. Okay, Dr. Patrick Moore of the CO2 Coalition, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Pleasure to be with you, Gary. At least 59 countries worldwide have banned female genital mutilation. It's a despicable act of cutting a girl's genitalia for social or cultural reasons. Senator Rand Paul says while that butchery is universally condemned, many people on the political left accept the mutilation of children for the purposes of irreversible sex change surgeries. Here's Senator Paul recently questioning Rachel Levine.
2: Dr. Levine, do you believe that minors are capable... Of making such a life changing decision as changing one's sex?
0: Senator, uh, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field. Uh, and if confirmed to the position of Assistant Secretary of Health, I would certainly be pleased to come to your office and talk with you and your staff about the standards of care and the complexity of this field.
2: Let it go into the record that the witness refused to answer the question. The question is a very specific one. Should minors be making these momentous decisions? For most of the history of medicine, we wouldn't let you have a cut sewn up in the ER, but you're willing to let a minor take things that prevent their puberty, and you think they get that back? You give a woman testosterone enough that she grows a beard, you think she's gonna go back looking like a woman when you stop the testosterone, you have permanently changed them. Infertility is another problem. There are dozens and dozens of people who've been through this who who regret that this happened and a permanent change happened to them. And, you know, if you've ever been around children, 14-year-olds can't make this decision. In the gender dysphoria clinic in England, 10% of the kids are between the ages of three and 10. We should be outraged that someone's talking to a three-year-old about
0: changing their sex. Yes, Senator Paul, where's the outrage? Remember when Senator Bob Dole asked that when he ran for president in 1996? He was referring to Clinton administration scandals. There was a little outrage back then, even less now, when it comes to mutilating our children. Sex-altering surgeries and hormone therapy have lifelong consequences for complex identity issues. I have a question for the women watching this. How many of you were pre-adolescent or teen tomboys? For most of you, it was just a stage and growing up, and many of you today may be happily married and have children, maybe grandchildren. Aren't you glad your parents or the government never forced you into altering your sex simply because you demonstrated a proclivity for behaving like a boy? Irreversible sex-altering surgery would have prevented you from having children once you grew out of that tomboy stage and became an adult. True, some people never grow out of it. While I don't support anyone physically changing their gender, the gender that God has ordained, such a decision should only be made by well-informed, mature, consenting adults. Parents and governments have no business imposing that life-altering surgery on any minor or allowing a child to make that decision. While genital mutilation is banned in many countries around the world, reconstructive surgical mutilation for the purpose of altering the sex of a minor should be treated as a human rights violation because it violates the rights of children. Liberals, remember you often say, it's all for the children. Yes, and in this case, the children should decide once they become adults. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, Parlor, MeWe, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.